Hello everyone, my name is Arti and welcome back to the Mahabharata. Episode 4 Parikshit, Bambi and the Pillar of Death In our last episode, we were in the world of gurus and disciples and we concluded with the pugnacious student Utanka delivering a pair of special earrings to his guru's wife with just a hair to spare. It was a harrowing experience, what with close encounters of the base bodily effluence kind, kleptomaniac snakes, journeys to the underworld and flying horses. But he survived it. Only now, Utanka is mad. He's pretty miffed that Takshaka the Snake King had needlessly caused him so much grief by stealing the earrings. So what's he going to do? He marches down to Janamejaya's court and he insults him. Yes, this is the same Janamejaya we've met before, Parikshit's son, Arjuna's great-grandson, still before the big snake barbecue where we first meet him. Wonderful son you are, Utanka says to him scornfully. Your father's killer wanders around freely and yet here you are relaxing, enjoying the good life. Janameja is shocked. What? he says. And who are you again? And what do you mean? My father's killer. Daddy wasn't murdered. He died a nice peaceful death of old age in his bed. It was homicide, says Utanka. And he tells the story. Now a couple of notes. All that self-discipline that young Brahmin students have to practice gives them a kind of paranormal power, the ability to see things and to do things out of the ordinary. This is called tapas, which literally means heat. Tapas. Yes, just like the Spanish appetizer served in cocktail bars, except, you know, without the Spanish or the appetizer or the cocktail or the bar. Tapas is a very important concept for our text, so you should just absorb that into your lexicon today. Basically, the idea is that any act of rigorous self-discipline garners energy or heat, which translates into potency of all sorts. So you have the power to incinerate people at will, to transform your irksome roommate into a frog. You have heightened vision to see into the future or to, into the past. And you have the capacity to command events, for example, in curses. Now, tapas is not by any means limited to Brahmins. Anybody can practice self-discipline and generate tapas, even you, and one of these days we can talk about how. But austerity and stoicism are critical parts of the Brahmin lifestyle as represented in our text. Hence, it's more often than not Brahmins engaged in tapas. I want to emphasize again that we're entirely in the world of imagination. Whether this image of Brahmins has any semblance to reality, past or present, is a question for another day, but for us, Brahmins are strictly a literary construct. 
We are characters in our story. Second point. So far, we've talked about Brahmins, who are the priestly class. Now, let's talk about Kshatriyas, who are the warrior class. There are, of course, other classes in society as well, but our text doesn't care about them. We're focused on Brahmins and Kshatriyas, and as for the others, you know, let them eat cake. Brahmins claim one kind of power, intellectual, ritual, occult power. In other words, they can do things with their minds. Kshatriyas, on the other hand, have real power, the kind we recognize well, of brute strength, force, armies, and state, and governance. Now, a basic rule of self-preservation is that you don't mess with people who can hurt you. This applies cross-culturally and trans-historically, whether you're dealing with warriors or gangs or even police. So, Kshatriyas in principle are like sleeping bears. They should not be poked. But here is our prickly Brahmin Utanka poking King Janamejaya with a nasty story about his daddy, Parikshit. Now let's hear about Parikshit, whom I think we gave a two on our must-remember scale because after today, we're hardly going to see him again. What's important about him is that he's the only surviving heir of the Pandavas. So, King Parikshit, Arjuna's grandson, is out hunting one day, chasing a deer. The deer, however, darts into the forest, leading Parikshit to follow him further and further in. Now, as a side note, disappearing deer are a theme in our epics. Many a story begins with kings hunting, deer disappearing, leading into strange places, often resulting in curses, often resulting in death. We're going to see this with Pandu very soon, and if you know the Ramayana, you'll know there are some deer mishaps there as well. So, Sanskrit literature has already primed us that this scenario is unlikely to go well, and back to our story, Parikshit is out hunting in hot pursuit of a deer who disappears into the forest. After a fruitless chase, Parikshit lands up at a hermit's ashram, weary, thirsty, and mystified. Dismounting his horse, he approaches the Brahmin respectfully, and we call such hermits munis, or if they're really accomplished, rishis, and we have a lot of munis and rishis in our story. So Parikshit dismounts his horse, greets the Muni respectfully, and asks him if he's seen the disappearing deer. But the Muni ignores him, and Parikshit is astonished. He's already announced himself, I am King Parikshit, son of Abhimanyu, grandson of Arjuna kind of thing, in other words, a pretty big shot. And yet, this fellow is ignoring him. Hungry, thirsty, and by now not a little crabby, Parikshit picks up a dead snake and dumps it on the Muni's neck. And then he goes home. Now, unbeknownst to Parikshit, the Brahmin had sworn a vow of silence, what's called a Mornvrat. Hence, he could not speak. This in and of itself is not a big deal. He's a laid-back sort of character and he doesn't take offence. But 
one of his Brahmin students witnesses the whole event and he goes and tells the Muni's hot-headed son, mocking his friend's austerities. Look at you, he says, you who claim to be so powerful with all that tapas that you practice. You don't even know that your father is wearing a corpse. Ha! That's so funny. FYI, in case you were unclear from the flies and maggots and birds of prey hovering over it, a dead body is highly polluting, especially for a Brahmin. So you try not to touch a dead body, and you certainly don't want to wear it, whether it's a leather jacket or your favorite fur-lined boots or a snake draped as a scarf. The Muni's son takes the bait. Upon hearing the full story, he's so angry that he curses the king, kind of also to prove his power to his taunting friend. That miscreant who disrespected my elderly father with a dead snake, he says, in seven days the king of snakes will fling him into the jaws of death. The king of snakes, as we have reason to know, is our klepto-jewel thief, Takshaka. Let's give him a two and a half in our story because we're going to meet him again. The hermit's son heads home to find his dad still seated in meditative posture with the dead snake draped around his neck. So he tells him, don't worry, daddy, I've taken revenge on your behalf. I've cursed the king to die in seven days. The Muni immediately breaks his silence and admonishes his son. That wasn't right. You shouldn't succumb to anger. We must master our senses. We must live a life of forgiveness, not be out cursing people. It's okay if the king made a mistake. But it's too late. King Parikshit has been cursed and there's no way to revoke it. The Muni decides that he has to warn the king and he hastily dispatches someone to convey the bad news. Now just imagine if someone tells you that in seven days you're going to die. Parikshit flips out. He goes through the five stages of grief in about five minutes, but realizing that there's no escape, he goes into full-blown panic. He calls his ministers and they strategize that he should make himself entirely inaccessible to snakes for the next week. But how are they going to do this? They decide they're going to build a platform on a giant pillar and he's going to perch himself there for the next seven days. Now, I know what you're thinking. Hmm, a platform on a pillar. But can't snakes slither up surfaces? And what happens if he has to use the facilities? But let's not get hung up on details. The ministers post guards all around, ready to stomp out any snake who happens to saunter along. Meanwhile, cut to camera two. Here we have a Brahmin named Kashyapa and he has a special gift. He has an antidote to snake poison. Brilliant, you're saying in relief. There you have it. That's the solution. Takshaka the snake will bite Parikshit to fulfill the terms of the curse and Kashyapa, the antidote-wielding Brahmin, will then restore him to life. Hallelujah! 
But for some reason, the snake king is like, no, that's not happening. Learning that Kashyapa the Brahmin is on his way to save Parikshit, he slithers over there in a flash and he waylays him. Short story, Takshaka the snake bribes Kashyapa to return home, antidote still tucked into his pants. Parikshit's one possibility of survival is walking away with a bundle full of cash. As an aside, maybe that's why Takshaka steals jewellery. But also, in Indian folklore, snakes love jewellery. Day 7, nearing sundown. The air in Hastinapur is tense. Parikshit remains perched upon his pillow with his counsellor standing sentry around him. Everybody is watching the clock, going tick-tock, tick-tock. Okay, clocks weren't invented till the 17th century, so everybody's presumably watching the alignment of the stars to see when the hour of danger has elapsed. Parikshit gets the nibblies and somebody chucks him an apple or some piece of fruit. Now, if you're thinking snakes and apples and people suffering dire consequences, where have I heard this before? Something about a naked man and woman in a beautiful garden. Well, the biblical story more likely involves a grape or a fig, but it seems ancient cultures the world over had a healthy fear of snakes. In fact, one of the reasons that India didn't turn Greek is because Alexander's army got tired of dying by snakebite. And in fact, his troops attempted solutions similar to Parikshit's. They'd sleep in hammocks slung between two trees, because you know how snakes can't climb trees. But I digress. There's Parikshit on his perch. Seven days are almost up, and somebody chucks him a piece of fruit to eat. Laughing, feeling pretty good that he's defeated the snake king, Parikshit bites into it and keels over dead. Takshaka had transformed himself into a tiny worm and had burrowed into the fruit. So you see, Utanka taunts Janamejaya, your father's killer is still at large, but here you are having a glorious good time. You can't even be bothered to avenge the murder of your father. And just like that, Janamejaya is hooked. After confirming Utanka's account with his ministers, he determines a course of action. He is going to kill Takshaka. In fact, he's going to do a little bit more. He's going to obliterate the entire species of snakes. Now, if you're starting to worry that we're into cycles of revenge and retribution where injuries to daddies must be avenged by sons, you may be on to something. First, you've got Parikshit disrespecting Shamik, the Muni, for ignoring him. And for this, the Muni's show-offy son condemns Parikshit to die by snakebite. Then you've got the snake king Takshaka denying Parikshit the antidote. For this, Parikshit's son is going to exact a terrible revenge. He's going to orchestrate a genocide of snakes. So that's some pretty grim stuff. But to conclude, let's think about where we started. It all began with Bambi, who draws Parikshit into the forest and then disappears. As we'll see, 
dual crossings are dangerous for heroes in the Sanskrit epics. What's that all about? Well, let's see if you'll join me next time on the Mahabharata.